0: Hey, good morning, everybody. This is a bigger crowd than last week. (laughs) Let's sing the hymn 874. One, two, and five. Oh, yeah, you might have to share hymnals. Here's the thing, okay? Here's the thing about the new pews they're fabulous. They're what? They're fabulous, but we discovered somehow. We don't have enough hymnals anymore. (laughs) Which has always been the case, but it's been easy to cover up with the chairs, but not anymore. very, Very good. Okay, very good. All right, let's sing the hymn, 874. Oh, splendor of God's glory, bright, O thou that bringest light from light, O light of light, light living spring, O day, all day's illumining, Alleluia. Come, very Son of truth and love, pour down thy radiance from above, and shed the Holy Spirit's ray on all we think or do or say. Hallelujah! On Christ the true bread let us feed, let him to us be drinking indeed, and let us taste with joyfulness the Holy Spirit's plenteousness. Alleluia. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Take away from us, O Lord, all our iniquities and the spirit of pride and arrogance, which you resist and fill us with the spirit of fear and give us a contrite and humbled heart which you do not despise that we may be enabled with pure minds to enter into the holy of holies through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, that's a great prayer. I'm not praying the colic for transfiguration today because you're going to hear that anyway but this is great because of the uh, idea of entering into the Holy of Holies. This is great for transfiguration because uh, the tabernacle has moved into the flesh of man and the Holy of Holies is now moved as well. And you have the idea of Moses coming down from the mountain in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus and he's been talking with the Lord and what does he have to do? You'll hear it today if you don't remember. Everybody's afraid of him because... Because his face shines, it reflects the glory of the Lord. So he veils his face, just like the veil in the tabernacle protects you from the glory of God. But now you don't have to worry about that, and you can enter into the Holy of Holies because the Holy of Holies has entered into you through the incarnation of Christ, which is made clear in the Transfiguration. Transfiguration is a major feast day of the church. Beautiful, beautiful day. Okay, let's speak the verse from the congregation at prayer. Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right, now this is actually, these are not Paul's words, even though we're saying it from Romans. This is actually from the Old Testament. Now you have this idea implicitly stated in Isaiah but you also have it explicitly stated in the book of the prophet Joel. So Paul is really quoting the Old Testament here, which is important. Why is it important that he's quoting the Old Testament when he says this? Prophecy? Well, sure. Yeah, it's, it's prophecy, but what's the context of all of this what's Paul talking about in the greater context here Romans 10 talking about salvation by the promise and being children of Abraham according to the promise including the Gentiles so why then is it important that this is Old Testament Uh yes, that's that's precisely the point because the Old Testament says whoever calls on the name of the Lord. So it's it would be easy to look at Paul and to say, well, if Paul just said this all by himself, then he's not anything other than just a bad Jew. But Paul is quoting the Old Testament scriptures which goes to show that he's not a bad Jew. He is a Good Jew, because he actually understands the Old Testament and understands what the prophets have said about the <coughs> promise of the Lord. So, he's, he says, as the prophets say, whoever, now of course, we have to put a caveat here, whoever, which means Anyone what? Anyone what? Believes. Uh, yes, who believes. Yes, yes. Uh, that's true. I, but I want to say it just a little bit differently, Jim. I'm, give, I'm still giving you full marks. Okay. I just want to say it differently. Anyone will say it like this. Anyone of faith. Because then that also ties into faith in the promises. So anyone of faith. And the reason why we make this distinction is because of how this ties into the prophet Isaiah, which I'll show you in just a second, hopefully. But the, the idea is that if the pagan who worships at the satanic temple is on an airplane, and is afraid of flying, and the plane hits turbulence, and the atheist who worships at the satanic temple on that plane says, oh Lord have mercy, and holds onto the seat, is that calling on the name of the Lord? No. That's why we make this distinction, so that the promise is for anybody But it is for anybody who is willing to have faith. And to have faith means that you're going to give up other things. You're going to leave unfaith behind and hold to faith. And I'll show you that from the prophet in just a minute. Whoever is of faith, which also means then anyone who sees Christ... For who he is. And then you can also say, and loves him. Because if we're going to be real, calling on the name of the Lord, this idea of calling, that's really what it entails. Yes, ma'am. Oh, what a great question. Thank you. I was, I was hoping that somebody was going to call me on that, and you didn't disappoint. Okay. How, the question is, if you didn't hear it, how can you be willing to have faith if you can't have faith without the working of the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit reveals things to you and calls you to faith, wakes you up, shall we say. You were dead, now you're alive and shows you what's good and what's not. And you can say, now, the way that the Roman Catholics would talk about this is something that prickles the hairs of so many Lutherans, but they say cooperation with grace. And now, Lutherans prickle their hair at that because they think what that means is that we're going to help God. (laughs) That's not what it means. Cooperation with grace means we're not going to fight God. We're going to let God have his way. So uh, the way that we talk about that is perhaps like this. We submit. But it's the same thing. Cooperation with grace is the same as submitting to grace, which is to say that now that we're woken up and we see what's real and what isn't and what's good and what isn't, and we hear that call to faith, we're going to let it work instead of fighting it. So I'm willing to have faith in that I want to go where Jesus is and I want to love Jesus, and I'm willing to admit that I don't know how to do it but that he does, and I will just sit back and let him work on me instead of trying to tell him, no, 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 hold on a minute, Jesus, hold on a minute. I'll show you how to do this. This is going to be really great. You just watch me, and I'll show you what's what. Sort of like when Peter tells Jesus, oh, no, over my dead body, are you going to go to the cross, Jesus? And then, of course, what is Jesus' response to that? Get behind me, Satan. Because it is a satanic idea that you don't submit to Jesus and that you would try and tell Jesus that your way is the better way. That is the very thing, that is the very definition of pride, which is the very thing that caused the fall in the first place. Does that answer your question? Yes. But I
1: still have a, I'll tell you my problem.
0: Okay, give me your problem, give them all to me. <laughs> <laughs> They can, yes. Yes. They don't have to.
1: No. But I, I just think, you know how long that answer took you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if someone says, I came to the Lord when I was 25, and, and I would say, well, the Lord
0: came to you through the Spirit. They'll say, oh, I know. Yeah, it's It is a little bit. Tell you what, I don't want to leave that question, but for the sake of long answers and time, okay. let's, can you pin that and remember it? And then when I send the kids downstairs, I'll come back to it. Okay. Is that agreeable to you? Yes. Okay, great. So let's, let's quick finish up the congregation of prayer here so the kids can go. Blah, 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 so calls. Now, uh, the name of the Lord, this is really important too because if I were a Bible editor, I would do this. What is the name of the Lord? Think, it's new, now, think about this in terms of new, new Testament language. What is the name of the Lord? Uh, no, I mean, that's who, that's who it is. Yeah, it's actually Jesus. All right, pastor's kid, there you go. The name is Jesus. That's the shorthand. That's the shorthand. What would we say is the long form of the name? And here's a clue for you, okay? You know that this is shorthand because Peter says, be baptized in the name of the Lord. Yeah, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the long hand, the full name, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the divine name. So whoever is calling on the name of the Lord, that is on the triune name, but we shorthand it, so we just say on the name of Jesus, that's fine. If you say the name of Jesus, it implies Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the way the apostles used it. So the name of the Lord, calling on the name of Jesus. And again, you don't call on the name of Jesus if you don't love Jesus. I mean, if you hate Jesus, you're not going to go, Oh, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Just doesn't really work. okay? And they shall be saved. Now, that's the promise. Where in the genealogy of Jesus do you see this taking place in real time? The idea, now this is when I said Isaiah. Isaiah says, on the great and terrible day of the Lord, all of those who called upon the, the Lord will see salvation. So when Jesus comes, he's gonna know his own and his own are gonna know him. But where do you see this happening in the real world, in real time? And, the, and I say the genealogy of Jesus because there are two really big important people in the genealogy of Jesus where you see that. I'll give you a clue. Think of the book of the Bible that Mr. Olin is named after. And what happens in that? What's one of the first things that happens in that book? When they come into the promised land, they meet a city called, and the walls came tumbling Jericho. down, Jericho! They find a city called Jericho, and in Jericho, there is a person named, she lives on the walls, Rahab. Is Rahab a Jew? No. No. Does Rahab call on the name of the Lord? Yes. In faith and in love. And then Rahab is saved and brought into Israel and then actually becomes part of the genealogy of the Messiah. Okay, that's what it looks like in real time. Okay, let's speak this again. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What is the second commandment? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble Pray, praise, and give thanks. Right. Don't misuse the name of the Lord your God because the name of the Lord is the Lord. That's why he gives you his name. You have power. There's always power where the name is. If somebody knows your name, this was an, you know, this was an old superstition. If somebody knows your name, they have power over you. So if you don't want somebody to have power over you, you give them a fake name because if they know your real name, they own you. Okay? Okay. But that's kind of cool when you think of the Bible because the Lord says, okay, you're going to be my children. Here's my name. Now you own me like I own you. You have me and you can call upon me and I will work for you. But don't misuse it. Don't curse. That is, pray to God to cause harm. That's like saying, God damn you. You don't say that. Praying for harm to the Lord that he would bring harm against another person. Uh, Swear. Which is not to say choice four-letter words, you probably shouldn't do that either. But to swear according to the name of the Lord would be to say, I remember being at a sleepover in middle school, and they were playing some video game, and, and one of the guys said something about, oh, no, no, you, you, you cheated, you cheated, and the guy said, no, I didn't cheat, I swear to God, I didn't cheat. Okay making an oath, take, taking out an oath according to the name of the Lord. So the other thing would be, you know, you don't say, oh, I, I swear on the grave of my dead grandfather. Like, that's a bad thing to do too. You're, you're misusing the person. Don't use satanic arts, I told you this, if you want a girl to fall in love with you, the old spell books say, you go, you know, find a frog and kill it at twilight and bury it and do all this, and then you draw a circle the next month, and then you call up the name of a demon, and the demon comes up out of the circle, and then you look at the demon and you say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, I bind you, now go make the girl fall in love with me, and the demon says, oh, shucks, well, you said the name of the Lord, so now I've got to do what you say. Okay, don't do that. That's not what the, that's not how to get a girl to love you. Don't Don't tell me that this is confession. It's also hard to find a problem. Yeah, (laughs) it is, yeah, yeah. So do it, do it the right way, okay? Don't lie, don't use the Lord's name for falsehood or to deceive or mislead anybody, okay, because if you're misusing the name, you're misusing the Lord, and that's not loving the Lord. That is actually the, the antithesis of love. That's using, not enjoying. Uh, it's not loving, it's taking advantage of. Okay, kids, you can go. We're a little over. Sorry, that was all my fault. I've just, I just missed you. I have trouble keeping it short when I don't see you. You yeah, know, I'm so excited. All right. Yes. Yes. Jesus is God. I'm being, I'm being pedantic.
1: They were listening. Oh, yeah, they do. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, okay.
0: Beautiful. The beautiful thing about children is that even when... Well, it depends on what it's about. Sometimes it's not so beautiful, but uh, they, they always listen whether you think that they are or not. I mean, the greatest, one of the greatest examples was Johanna Biermann. This was some time ago when she was little. Oh, she's so big now. But she... It was like a Thursday and she came to Jennifer and she said, "Pat, mom, pastor said this in his sermon on Sunday and cite- like quoted a whole paragraph word for word and then said, what did he mean by that? And Jennifer didn't even remember that, that I had said that. And he wanted to know what, I didn't either. <laughs> oh, did I preach that? Oh, that was pretty good. Okay, uh, but the kids are, the kids are listening. The, the beauty of children is that they're great passive listeners. Adults, are you lose that as you get older. You stop being a good passive listener. You have to start being more active because there's so much more that you have to think about and then your mind gets full and you forget things and you can't listen. And Yeah, so ch- children, I, I've said this before. My life's goal is to convince you that this is true, that the children are the smartest out of all of us. You get dumber when you get to be an adult. You learn more things, but somehow it makes you dumber. Like, you can go and get your PhD or whatever, and somehow a child can still put you to shame. <laughs> okay, now let's let's uh, let's get this let's get this taken care of. So, can you? I've already forgotten precisely what you had said. Can you can you refresh me, please? Oh, I've heard so many times. Yes. Mm, sure. Yeah, okay, it's wrong or it's worse to say that you came to the Lord. How would, you say How would I say it? Well, I mean, I would say called to faith. Because, okay. because of course, what do we say? This is, this is catechumen. Uh, this is Christian, or Lutheranism at least, 101. But when we say in the third article of the Creed, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in my Lord Jesus Christ or come to him, I mean, first of all, we're going to take that literally. I literally believe that, one, I cannot believe. (laughs) I believe that I cannot believe, and I believe that I cannot pick my legs up and make them move and bring myself to where Jesus is. We have to be acted upon. So one of the things in the catechumenate that I do often is to talk about why you cannot make the decision for Jesus. And usually, if people will tell me, well, I made the decision for Jesus so-and-so, and isn't that great? I'll say, well, sure, that's pretty great, but what's, what's better is that Jesus has already made the decision for you. So we, we try to put as much as we are possibly able on what Jesus does and sort of paint ourselves into the background. It doesn't mean we don't, there aren't things that we do. I mean, Jesus does say, ask, seek, seek. Knock, doesn't he? I'm gonna ask every doesn't he say that? Ask, seek, and what? And knock. Doesn't he say that? He does say that. Now, if he is telling you, go and ask, go and seek, go and knock on a door, doesn't that seem like you're doing something? Absolutely. And you want to know why? Because you are. But the point is, you're not doing it just out of the blue randomly because you decide, you woke up one morning and decided, well, you know what would be a really good idea today is if I hunted for Jesus. I've hated him my whole life, but today maybe I'll make the change and I'll go looking for him. As it happens, Debbie, boy, the Lord is fortuitous. I even have a catechumenate handout in, in here on this very thing. Did, you didn't plant that, did you? <laughs> okay, Right, so here's the thing. Okay, John 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I mean, Jesus said that. It's really hard to say, no, 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 Jesus, I did choose you. But then he also does say about Mary, Mary chose the better part because Mary chose to sit at Jesus' feet in the dirt and listen to him teach and to love him. But see, even that is a response. So the way that Lutherans would talk about everything is as response. We don't deny that there are things that you do, but everything that you do is a response to an initiation by the Lord and something you are able to do as a response only because of the working of the Lord. So we don't deny that you do things, but we tend to downplay it because we say, yeah, but even if I were to take credit for it, that would sort of be prideful because really it's the Lord who does it. So here's another one, 1 John 4:19, which is what everybody knows. We love him because he first loved us. So even your love of Jesus is a response to what he has done. Because of course, the dead man can't do anything. The dead man can't love anybody. Something has to happen to the dead man before he can do anything, and what is that thing? He's got to come back. The dead man's got to be raised. The dead man's got to be brought to life before he can do anything. So we don't say that we made a decision for Jesus because Jesus made the decision for us. The dead man doesn't, you know, have the paddles put on his chest, and then wake up and go, boy, I'm sure glad that I uh, put those paddles on my chest, or I'm sure glad that I thought of asking you to put those paddles on my chest to help me out. that's you know, absurd, it just doesn't work. Um, so here's then, related to that, a, a quote from uh, Augustine. This is from his work on grace and free will, and this is what he says. If we first loved him, in order that by this merit he might love us, Basically saying, um, if, if our love for Jesus was so great that it made Jesus want to love us, then we first chose him that we might deserve to be chosen by him. We did the good things so that he would take notice and then want us on his team. He, however, who is the truth, says otherwise and flatly contradicts this vain conceit of men. See, it's prideful and conceitful to put it on us. You have not chosen me, he says. If therefore you have not chosen me, undoubtedly you have not loved me. For how could they choose one whom they did not love? What's the answer? How can you choose someone you did not love? You can't. can't. But I, says he, have chosen you. And then, could they possibly help choosing him afterwards and preferring him to all the blessings of this world? And of course, the answer to that is, if Jesus has loved me and done all of these things for me, is it at all possible for me not to love him and not to want to choose him and to run after him and to do anything he tells me to do? If Jesus says, knock on the door, I say, how hard and how many times? If Jesus says, hey, jump, I say, however you want me to do it and however high, I will do it. Why? Because I love you. But why do I love you? It's because you have shown love to me. Because you have purchased and won me. But it was because they had been chosen that they chose him, not because they chose him that they were chosen. There could be no merit in men's choice of Christ if it were not that God's grace was prevenient in his choosing them. So we can say, yeah, it's a good thing for you to choose Jesus, just like Jesus says of Mary. Hey, look at Mary, be like her. She chose the better part. But when we say that, we also must acknowledge that the reason we do so is because the Holy Spirit has called, enlightened, sanctified, and done all of those things in us, as we say in the explanation of the third article of the Creed. I'll give you one more here. This is from Matthew 7. This is the very thing I just mentioned. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. I wrote a newsletter article about this. This was a while back, maybe a couple months ago, but I was thinking about this verse, because somebody asked me a question similar to this, and I thought about, I think it was something like Jesus on the outside, because often the way that you picture this, the, the, the idea of knocking, is that you're walking through the forest, and you stumble upon a forest house, and you say, ah, look, a house, I need a place to live, and you knock, and then Jesus opens and says, I've been waiting for you come in, but... What if Jesus is the one on the outside? What if Jesus is the one who rings the doorbell and then you come to the door but you think you're on the outside when you're really on the inside and Jesus says, hey, I'm here. Open the door. I want to come in. I'm here. I'm here. And you knock on the door and Jesus says, yes! And pounds back. Open the door and you open it and then Jesus comes in. Well, then where is the impetus? Who did it? You or Jesus? Really, it was Jesus. Would you ever have opened the door if Jesus hadn't been pounding on it? No. You see what I mean? So, um, I don't even remember what I wrote there, but it's somewhere. If you want a copy, I I have it in a file, I'm sure. But, okay, then there's a quote from Ambrose of Milan. Ambrose was Augustine's teacher. (coughs) Better dad to him than his own dad was. So, this is a prayer from Ambrose, and he says this. Lord, teach us to seek you, and reveal yourself to us when we seek you. For we cannot seek you unless you first teach us, or find you, except you reveal yourself to us. Let us seek you in longing, and long for you in seeking. Let us find you in love, and love you in finding. O Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen." Now, isn't that a beautiful prayer to pray? So, you know, it's not, this is a really long way of saying it's not necessarily wrong to say that I found Jesus, but it's also not the best thing to say. It's not the best way to say it. And in the Christian church, what we always ought to be concerned about is the best things, looking the best things, presenting the best things, why do I practice the divine service so often? You don't even know <laughs> how often that stuff gets practiced throughout the week to make sure that on Sunday there aren't big mistakes. Why? Because I want to present the best. Why do we not, you know, why, why does the church, why shouldn't the church buy cheap, chintzy things for the sanctuary? Because they aren't the best. And we always are about the best. Why are we so concerned about the language that we use in the church? I mean, painstakingly going through in the preservation of the creeds, in the foundational texts, why is Bible translation such a painstaking, should it be a painstaking process? Why is it so irritating when people go in and just rewrite the Apostles' Creed in a some fun, cutesy way that they think they're going to like. Because it's not the best. Because the church is about the best, because it is is a reflection of the Lord, who is himself the very best. So yes, we quibble about words and how to say things and what the best way is to do certain things because we are so concerned about that. So while I could say I found Jesus and not technically be incorrect, it just isn't the best way to talk because the best way to talk is to acknowledge that while maybe I did find Jesus, he had found me a long time before. And if it took me 43 years of my life until I finally found Jesus, Jesus was the fretting mother crying at the door saying, just come to me already, I'm right here. And you say, no, what's that? I don't hear anything. And then when you finally, you can find, okay, fine. And you go, I found Jesus. It's like playing hide and seek, and the kids are making all kinds of noise, and then you go and say, I found you, and then treating it seriously like, boy, I'm such a good finder. And they're back behind the chair going, he'll never find us here. You know, Well, of course you're gonna find them because they're making so much noise. Jesus isn't trying to hide from you. He's putting himself right out in the open. You're just not looking. So when you do find him, it's not because you did anything that was so great. It's finally because you just stopped trying to be so great, and you just let Jesus take the driver's seat for once in your life. Does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. I think we need to maybe be loving and, and know that many times it's because they don't know the language. Oh, sure, they yeah. The, they have the love. They have the knowledge that if you ask them, you, do you know how you
1: came to Christ? Of course, I couldn't have come to Christ without the Holy Spirit. Sure. But without the language, sometimes they're being judged.
0: Sure. I think... Christians generally, across the board, could all stand to be a little more loving, especially in these days when the whole world is against us. It's better for us, who are all in the same house, if not sharing the same room, that we maybe not quibble so much. Peter Kreeft, my favorite uh, philosopher in the whole world, Roman Catholic, teaches at Boston College. I wrote him a letter once because I realized I thought he was in his 60s and then I realized he was in his 80s and had cancer and I thought, oh no, the guy's, ne- guy's going to die before he knows. Like, look how prideful this is. He's going to die before he knows that I love him. <coughs> so I, t- I wrote him a letter and he hand wrote me a letter back. It's a, my, one of my greatest treasures. Anyway, he says, he has this, he has this line, he says, um, when crazy men are at the door, Fighting siblings inside unite. And friends, I think the crazies are at the door. Can you pass this back to Debbie? You can just have this, because I don't even know why I have it here. And I don't need it, so you can have it. You're welcome. Bill.
1: Dr. Lemke had a amusing retort that you said to him, I found Jesus, he would say. Or I found God, he was the I didn't
0: know God was lost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's not really hiding. Um, sometimes we just think that he is. And, of course, there are certain, certain denominations where more impetus is put upon you to be the one to go out to do the searching and the finding because Jesus did say search. But the the thing is, Jesus didn't say, search for me because I'm hiding from you, and when you find me, you get a reward. Like, you found me, good work. We're not playing I spy or Jesus hide and seek. Jesus said, come and find me, I'm right here. Come to me. Here, I made you alive, and now I want you to come to me so I can love you. Yes?
1: Max, a certain amount of pride. Mm-hmm. Pride is—it's it, not included in this. Discussion.
0: Right, but, but pride. right. It, the Christian life. This is, this is. It doesn't matter what denomination that you're a part of. The Christian life is to be one of humility. Um, I, I think that there are, you know, our evangelical brothers and sisters would probably argue that to say they found Jesus is humility. We don't necessarily agree with that. But the other thing is, you know, be, be charitable. This is where the, the new translation of the Eighth Commandment actually does work well. Explain everything in the kindest way. Okay? The old translation is generally better. Put the best construction on everything. But in this case, explain things in the kindest way. Don't be one of those Lutherans and uh, you all know exactly who I'm talking about because Lutherans sometimes have a tendency to be rather salty, gruff, angry people. Don't be one of those if somebody says, I found Jesus, and say, Well, I'm going to tell you what. You, hear about what... you know, don't jump down their throats. Explain things in the kindest way. Be thankful to God that there are other people that love him, okay? Yes, Bill?
1: A couple of times and I'm thinking of one specifically, but a couple of times I've heard uh, date and time to the minute I found Jesus. Sure. And and both instances that I'm thinking of now were at church services where they heard a particularly um, Billy Graham or Billy Graham style. Oh, yeah, sure. And, And I came to faith when I heard Billy Graham. My reply to that was, what motivated you to put yourself in the place where you heard Billy Graham or, or whoever then make that gospel presentation mm-hmm. to you? What? And, and my reply to my own question is, the Holy Spirit moved you to be there, to, to receive that so that there is some act of Work there because you actually went out and got your car and drove to this place. Sure, but what motivated you? Where did it
0: start? Sure, and that's where I say, okay, fine. So you heard a Billy Graham sermon. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take a big dump on Billy Graham. Okay, Uh, not everything Billy Graham did was horrible. I mean, listen to some Billy Graham sermons. Sure, we'll disagree with some of them. But hey, you know the guy. The guy loved Jesus. Read like Charles Spurgeon too. Hey, he was a Baptist. But guess what? We have the complete sermons of Charles Spurgeon downstairs in the library. And you might learn a thing or two by reading some Charles Spurgeon, even though he was a Baptist. And even though you might not agree with everything that he says, but it's worth at least speaking about. But okay, so you went to you went to hear a Billy Graham sermon. Fine, good on you, and you say that you found Jesus there. I would say you didn't find Jesus there, you encountered Jesus there. That's maybe how I would do it because that's two different things. Finding means something's lost and not accessible and I had to dig around and root around to locate it whereas encountering is saying he's been here the whole time and he's been calling out and finally I was there and realized it. So that's sort of the difference in the language. But again, this is this is a matter of our vocabulary. How do we talk? Chesterton said that you you know people sometimes would would, would uh, they, they accuse Christians of being pedants because we quibble about the definitions of words, but Chesterson says, "You ought to quibble about the definitions of words, because words have meanings, and when you stop quibbling about the definitions, they lose their meanings. There was a great oh, sorry, go ahead. Today, today Yes. Sure. Always,
1: but if you know what they mean, give it a
0: rest. <laughs> okay, yeah. Is that is that is that chastising me? I just mean if you know
1: what that fellow loving Christian means.
0: Oh yeah. Well, that's what I'm. That's one of the, one of the points I'm trying to make. Is look if you're having coffee at McDonald's and somebody says. I heard a Billy Graham sermon on March twenty second, nineteen eighty-three, and, and I found Jesus. Just say, praise the Lord. You know, don't you you don't need to you don't need to dive into theology and whip out the blackboard and and pull out a catechism and say, Well, you better read this then. And it's you know, so that the um, Holy Spirit brought you to, you know. Yeah, yeah. Hey, that's really good. Yeah. Isn't that a delight that the Holy Spirit brought you to hear Billy Graham? Sure. It's just because or the Lutheran hour, you know, <laughs> say it's the same thing. i very thankful that, that I was brought into the Lutheran church. I'm very thankful for that. Sure. And I like our language, but not everybody knows the language. Only, only we know the language. <laughs> That's the thing. Only Lutherans know the Lutheran language. Only Catholics know the Catholic, that's why you have to study the language, you have to know what people are saying because sometimes they use words. This is part of the problem with, the, with, with Lutherans and Catholics, is that Lutherans think Catholics say one thing because of the words they use and Catholics think that Lutherans are saying something because of the words they use, but when you start sitting down and say, well, here's what this word means in the Lutheran church, and they, oh, well, that's not what it means here and say, so,
1: well, there's your problem.
0: You know, you know, what we have here is a fa- simple failure to communicate. Okay, so, yeah, we, so we, we quibble about the language, but the way that we quibble about the language is that we go back, you know, ad fontes to the source. And that's why I like to use the church fathers so much, because the church fathers are supposed to be universal. So when Augustine and Ambrose both say, sure, you decided for Jesus, but only because Jesus has first decided for you, then you can say, okay, sure, this is, you know, this is the language of the church, and here's how the church talks. And if we talk differently than how the church talks, then that's on us to get back in line with how the church talks. Because we're not supposed to make up our own tongues, but to use the tongues of our mother. Okay? Yeah. Just be nice people. I once—I was really afraid to be a pastor. Horrendously afraid to be a pastor. Do you want to know why? I was afraid to be a pastor because I always considered myself an academic. And I thought that if I went to a church, I would kill it. So I didn't want to be a pastor. I was afraid. And I asked my mentor, what am I supposed to do? I've got this call now to Mound City, Missouri. I don't know anything about this church. And I'm just going to kill it. How do I be a pastor? I don't know what to do. And he said, I don't know, guy. This is his exact quote, okay? This is what makes it so good. He said, I don't know, guy. Can you just, like, uh uh-huh, be a decent human being? (laughs) And I said, well, uh... I don't know, I've never tried. No, <laughs> I said, I think, I think I can. And he said, well, there you go. You can be a pastor. You be a decent human being. Just love your people, love your community. You can be a pastor. And I thought, oh, oh, okay. You know, but the same advice is sort of like, how do I be a Christian? How do I, or like, here's a good one. How do I be a Lutheran in, in Mound City, Missouri, which is a great place to be, When there are, what, six or seven active churches, except for that they're all evangelical. And I don't say except because that's a bad thing. I just just mean, how do you be a Lutheran? I mean, there aren't even, there aren't even, there's not even a Catholic church in Mound City, Missouri, which is great for us, no competition. (laughs) (laughs) But, so, how, how do you be a Lutheran? And how do you be a good Lutheran, a faithful Lutheran, and a good and faithful Christian? in this place, when everybody around you is different? I don't know. Can you just, like, be a decent human being? Can you love Jesus and find Jesus in your neighbor? Can you rejoice in the fact that at the very least the gospel is proclaimed? Because even if you disagree about some of the language, if you ask any of the other churches here, did Jesus die for your sins? And do you love Jesus? And... Did, did Jesus atone for all of your sins? And is it by the grace of God? Ever, they would all say yes. And the position of the Lutheran Church, according to the confessions, and according to the official position of the Missouri Synod, is to say, well, then you can at the very least rejoice that you have brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we're not in full fellowship, full agreement when it comes to every tiny little thing about the faith. And I can say that I am sad that none of the other churches in Mound City think as highly of the Eucharist as we do. But I can also say that I rejoice that at the very least the Lord has made children. And would I say that if Jesus comes back that he's going to swing the hammer and destroy all of the other congregations here for lack of faith. I'm, I'm not going to say that because I can't and I'm not allowed to. Now, do I think that our confession of faith is, is one of the better ones? Yes, I do. I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to go and become a Methodist. But we also have to be willing to Rejoice in the common gospel. Here's the joy of of being circuit visitor is, this is how I put it. Maybe I'm jaded. But I don't really think this congregation has problems. We don't have two hour long voters assembly meetings where everyone's screaming at each other. And frankly, I, as the pastor, don't even dread the Voters' Assembly meetings as many pastors do. Well, I'm about to get my butt chewed again by the Voters' assembly. I mean, that's, un- that's unhealthy, and this is a healthy place. People love each other, people take care of each other here, so I don't have problems here. Every now and then, something pops up and we sort of just take care of it, but you know, that's the church, because you deal with people. But at, by and large, this is a great, peaceful uh, place. But then you get to be circuit visitor and all of the squabbles and quibblings and problems of all the other congregations that aren't yours now become yours. And this idea of rejoicing in common unity in the gospel even without full, what we would call altar and pulpit fellowship, which just means we agree on every single point of every single teaching of every single doctrine of the church. even though we might not have altar and pulpit fellowship, I can at least rejoice in the grace of God and the work of the Spirit wherever it is to be found. And that's a much more charitable approach to take. Does that mean that every single Methodist is going to be saved? Every single person that walks through the door of First Christian Church? Every single person that sings a song at Christian Fellowship? Every single person that speaks a prayer at New Life Apostolic is going to be saved? Does it mean every single person at Holy Trinity is going to be saved? Or every single person who's a card-carrying member of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod? I got my card stamped by the President himself. Okay? No. In fact, one of the prayers that I pray that comes from the TLH uh, uh, pastor's companion is uh, a a daily prayer for pastors that includes petitions about the, the church has many false Christians within her, and we pray for their conversion. We pray for anybody who is in the church who still has a hardened heart but who still comes on a a Sunday that maybe you don't even know about, that they would be, that their heart would be broken open and softened. Only the Lord knows that, but we rejoice in the doctrine of election because it means that whoever will be saved will be saved. And we rejoice in the fact that the Lord loves us and has called us to faith. We rejoice in the sacraments of God that he has instituted and given to us. And we find solace there. I will receive the sacrament in joy. I will walk through the waters of baptism and step up to the altar and eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus. And then really, what do I have to worry about? Some guy at McDonald's who said he found Jesus. Okay.
1: I, I thought it was interesting. We had that
0: little seminar in June. Oh, Protreptics, yeah. And that
1: pastor from, is his name David? The one pastor from one of the churches here?
0: Oh, uh, yeah, Pastor Certain, Will Certain. Yeah. From, he's Nazarene by background, but I think non denominational by trade. Do, I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm distinctly not. And he, Okay. ah, this is, a, this is a live mic, so I don't... Okay, Pastor Certain came with his Greek New Testament. Let me, let me tell you something about Pastor Certain, okay? You know the Word on Fire Bibles that I'm just always a walking commercial for? If you've never heard my pitch for the Word on Fire Bible, come and find me after church. There's potluck today, so you know, stick around and eat and then come find me, I'll take you to my office, I'll show you the Word on Fire Bible. It's produced by the Word on Fire Institute, which is a Catholic institute run by Bishop Robert Barron, who was the former bishop of, the, of LA. Now he's in Las Vegas, I think. Okay, anyway. I didn't know that those existed. It was at a ministerial alliance meeting that Pastor Certain brought his Word on Fire Bible and said, I think this is something you're going to like. And you want to know what? I didn't like it. I loved it. (laughs) Okay, He, he went to the seminary, which he did not have to do as a Nazarene, but he went and he spent four years at the seminary studying. He knows Greek, he knows Hebrew, and he still keeps them up. I mean, that's to be commended. He knows the church fathers, and he reads them, he still studies, and if I'm going to be brutally, brutally cut to the bone honest with you, Pastor Certain the Nazarene puts about 50% of Lutheran Church Missouri Synod pastors to shame because he actually does his work and studies and reads and exegetes the text. I told him once, early, early on, I thought he was too smart to be a Nazarene. And he laughed.
1: I think you kind of said that or that in our session.
0: I may have, we have a good relationship, he and I. And he kept saying things like, well, I'm not really up on all this stuff. Sure, yeah. He's very humble about it, but he's, he knows more than what he would let you catch. It's like Augustine, who used the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, and wrote all of this stuff and then said, oh, but my Greek's not very good because I was all self-taught, so, you know, don't trust my Greek. The guy was good. His Greek was better than mine. Okay, so he's humble. But so I, I told him, I thought he was too smart to be a Nazarene. And he said, I don't know. What I do know, though, is I think that we're in a lot of danger and that, you know, I can, I can speak for the Nazarenes. Not many of them actually go to the seminary. And so there's some struggles within the denomination and they're not gonna get any better if guys who actually do wanna be faithful and read and study and be good pastors don't stay. Which is why I am not working on him. <laughs> because I have, res- I have respect for that. We have our disagreements about theology, but I have respect for anyone with whom I disagree who can actually hold their own in discussion and engage in healthy conversation. If you don't know what you believe, but you're gonna, you're gonna stand for it anyway, and if somebody tries to talk to you about it, you can't say anything about it, I have zero respect for that. But if you're somebody who knows your stuff, then I do have respect for that, and I am more than happy to accept the fact that we have differences and still respect you for being so convinced of what it is that you believe through your study and commitment to the scriptures, to the church history, and, and, and to the development of Christian doctrine. Okay. Sure, yeah. You always get their best if they're actually passionate about it. You know, some guys who go into the ministry, I haven't met one of these yet, but, but this is just for example. Gu- guys who go into the ministry because they want an easy paycheck, you know, well, then there's a problem because then, the, then they're not doing it out of any kind of motivation other than something earthly or worldly. But the people who stay because they have a passion and perhaps even a better word than passion would be the Old Testament word of zeal. Like from the psalms, zeal for your house has filled me, O Lord. Somebody who is filled with zeal will be so wholly committed to the church of wherever they are that they will study, that they will read, mark, learn, inwardly digest, ruminate, and will love their mother warts and all. Because the mother has lots of warts. But you know what? We still love her. We still give her kisses and we still speak well of her. Okay, anybody else have questions? We're about at time. That was a really good series of questions, Debbie. Thank you. you. All right, love you all. We'll see you at the altar. Oh, yes! (laughs) We've got potluck. so maybe turn some chairs around, push some tables together and will save us all a little bit of work.
1: After yes, I would still challenge you.